Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 23 and to this puzzling and plain chapter in God's Word. It's 37 years that have passed since Isaac was born. 20 years have passed since the events in the previous chapter. Sarah dies. And Abraham's faith is again tested. His beloved Sarah has passed away. And yet this chapter isn't really about her death. Only three verses, verses 1 and 2 and then verse 19, uh, deal with her death and her burial. And God isn't even mentioned in the chapter. Did you notice that when we read it? It's this long, detailed record of a discussion in modern day terms, in a solicitor's office, more or less. At the city gate was the place where the court sat, where judgments were carried out, where negotiations that you wanted to be witnessed were formalized and notarized. That's what it is. It's a verbal contract that's been recorded here for God's people to know the legitimacy of the title deeds. Really? We're going to study title deeds in church this morning? Well, what is it we see when we look at this chapter? There's three things uh, to see. First of all, uh, there's faith's pain. There's faith's pain. 37 years after laughter came into her life, after 90 years of waiting for a child, Sarah dies. But don't let the fact that her death is only briefly noted fool you. She's the first and only woman in Scripture whose age at death is recorded. It's quite a common thing for us to say that so-and-so was such and such an age uh, when they died and were buried. But this is the only woman who's mentioned like this. It's the first death and burial in Hebrew history. It's not Abraham, the great father of the the nation, but it's Sarah, the mother of the nation. So this indicates her importance. If only we had Genesis to go on, we might be inclined to think very negatively of Sarah. You know, we see her agreeing to Abraham's lies. You just say you're my sister, you know, so that we don't get into trouble. Don't let on you're my wife. She urges him to, to sleep with Hagar, her maid, she struggles to believe God's promise. Uh, we, we would say that her faith certainly isn't of the same standard or caliber as Abraham's faith. But really, whose faith is on the same standard as Abraham's? We, we think, oh yes, Sarah's not on the same, as if we're on the same level as Abraham. This guy figured out without any evidence that God could raise the dead. Like, we struggle to believe that, do we not? And we've got the evidence of the, 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 the widow's son that Elijah raised from the dead and that Elisha raised from the dead and the, the widow of Nain, her son, and Lazarus raised from the dead and Jairus' daughter raised from the dead and the stunning resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've got doubts. We think, oh, you know, I'm not so sure. Abraham hadn't seen a single resurrection and yet we read in Hebrews and 
uh, in Genesis, about Genesis 22, that because God had promised that his descendants would be reckoned through Isaac, Abraham reckoned that God could raise the dead. That is a stunning level of faith. And so when we say Sarah didn't have the same level of faith as Abraham, that's not, it's not being overly negative, is it? For she did believe the promise. She did believe the promise. We see that by the very fact that Isaac is born. Abraham and Sarah must have believed the promise. And we have 62 years of her life covered in Scripture, and we've got four or five negative incidents. And yet the Apostle Peter writes and extols her virtues as a godly and submissive wife whose spiritual beauty exceeded her physical beauty. And she must have been physically stunning because at 70, Abraham's worried that Pharaoh will fancy her. At 90, he's concerned that Abimelech will take her into his harem. And yet Peter writes uh, to to the the, the godly woman that he's writing to amongst the believers, says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters. In other words, all that I've just told you to do, not just the aspect of of being submissive to their own husbands, but everything else. You are her daughters, doing what is right, and not giving way to fear. What what an honor Peter bestows on these godly women and on Sarah when he says, you, if you're spiritually godly and gracious, are like Sarah. You're her daughters. The Jews took pride in in being children of Abraham. And Peter says to these, these Christian women, you are daughters of this great woman in the Old Testament. And her her submission certainly wasn't slavish, was it? She spoke up for her son when Abraham would have dithered, and God endorsed her opinion. And yes, there's flaws in her faith. But she was a woman who did hang on to, eventually believe God's promise. And she modeled submissive godliness and graciousness Uh, that Peter praises. And note just in passing, before we get to the grief, before grief, there's 37 years that God gives to Sarah with her son. There's something lovely there. It's one of those little things that we see a few times in Scripture, that when we trust God, He doesn't rob us. And how do we know that God doesn't rob us? Well, there's a few times where God sets this principle out. Jacob lost Joseph for 22 years. And when they were reunited in Egypt, they had 17 glorious years together uh, where Jacob got to see his son second in command of Egypt, governing well and wisely. He got to see his grandchildren. 
through Joseph. Hannah promised that if God gave her the son that she longed for, she would give him back to God. Well, did God shortchange Hannah? No. He gave her three further sons and two daughters. Job trusted God with his pain of having lost all. Did God shortchange Job? No, he gave him seven sons and three daughters, twice as much by way of livestock and wealth. What's this saying to us? Is it saying that if we trust God, he'll make us wealthy in this life and make all our sorrows eventually go away in this life? No. He may do that. But what it is showing us is that we can trust God to make things more than right when we trust him with our loss and our pain. We see just in these little examples that God can be trusted with our hurt. He'll not shortchange us. He'll make it up to us beyond all that we could imagine. We're not wasting our time when we trust him with our pain. But faith does have pain. And now this godly, even if flawed woman is gone, and Abraham has lost his life's companion, and even in these short verses you get a sense of grief and sorrow. Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his wife. You know, you get that sense of he's been sitting grieving and mourning beside her, and then the care he takes to get her a resting place. Faith has its pain. Faith doesn't exempt us from trials and loss and from tears. Some Christians think that it should and that it does and that the Christian is going, if you're a Christian, that you should be healthy, wealthy and prosperous and everything will go well for you. That's not what we see in Scripture. Some Christians assume that even in bereavement, Christians shouldn't grieve. They say things like, well, I know they've gone to a better place and we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be sad. Well, you should be sad. The fact that, the, that a fellow believer has gone to a better place means that they're not here with us. And we miss them because of all that God made them to be. And it is right to grieve. Even in faith, we're permitted to grieve. Because faith has its pain. That's why Peter writes... Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Sometimes Satan will cause us to doubt our relationship to God or God's goodness to us when we're going through trials as if they're unexpected. But they're not. They're part and parcel of living by faith in a broken world. Secondly, faith's investment. And this, in many ways, is, is the main point of this strange chapter. Seventeen verses given over to land negotiations. And that's not because Moses is a, a closet legal geek who thinks, oh great, <laughs> we'll really big this piece up in this account that I'm writing. No, this is important. The space given to it indicates that. What does Abraham do in the face of Sarah's death? Think for a moment 
what the options were. He was from Ur, away over in modern-day Iraq. He could have made the long trek to his homeland to bury his wife there with his family and her people. But maybe you remember that his family line and even her family had moved from Ur to Haran, which was 400 miles north. So rather than going on the 1,000-mile trek, he could have gone north of 400 miles to bury her in a plot with Terah, her father, uh, to bury her with her family, uh, to bury her with her relations. Uh, Laban um, was still there, and uh, Abraham will send Isaac there to find a wife. Jacob will go there to find a wife. There are still strong connections. But Abraham doesn't do that either. Nor does he settle for the offer of a tomb which seems generous. But Abraham is determined. And here's the thing to keep your eye on in this chapter. He's determined to buy the land. doesn't matter if he's going to be ripped off over the, the sake of the price. And I think he is. I don't think even in Ireland we would take the first price that's mentioned. We'd start there and we'd start to haggle. Well, you've seen what Middle Easterners are like. They, you know, they bargain for all they're worth. They, they deal and they haggle and Abraham just goes, yeah, okay, 400. And he ends up having to buy the field as well as the cave when all he wanted was the cave. Ephron is really sticking the arm in, but Abraham is determined to have this piece of land at any cost, and for it to be witnessed, for it to be purchased. And the whole point of this written account is that it functions as a contract, as the title deeds, as it were, of this piece of land, of the purchase of this piece of land for Abraham and for his family. He wants this. And the whole negotiation bears witness to the fact that he wants this land. Now, why does he want this land? Because God had promised that this land of Canaan would one day be his. In Genesis 17, verse 8, God said, The whole land of Canaan where you reside as a foreigner, I will give, and here's two key words, as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And when we come to Genesis 23 in verse 4, Abraham says, sell me some property. It's the same word that's used here for, that's used for possession in Genesis 17. It's also used in verse 9 and verse 20. It, it goes at the beginning and at the end of the whole section. Give me a possession where I can bury my family. Give me a possession. He doesn't just want a patch of land. He wants a possession because God had promised him it. As an alien and stranger, he couldn't own land and wasn't entitled to buy it in a regular transaction. He could get it by intermarrying, but he's not going to do that. He doesn't want his son Isaac intermarrying with these people just to get a piece of land. He's going to send him to his home people where God is known and God is more likely to be honored. And so he seeks a meeting with the local council of elders at the city gate. And he's determined to purchase the land. 
And they're almost equally determined in a polite way to not, to not let him purchase land. Here, have a tomb. Oh, no, just have the land. Well, if you say you give him the land, you could take the land back off him. But Abraham wants it signed, sealed, and witnessed. He wants it all notarized. He wants it legally made over to him. And you see when it says uh, in verse 17, So Ephraim's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham. Some of you have maybe stood there with the little postage stamp-sized marking on a map that marks out your plot where your house is, and you're talking with a neighbor, and they're saying, well, no, actually, that hedge isn't included, or that little square of land doesn't belong, and you're having a dispute over the boundary lines. Well, Abraham, that, this is what this is. It's nailing down exactly what belongs. But why? What we see is that in the face of death, instead of focusing on the problem and the sorrow, Abraham is focusing on God's promise. Already with Isaac, he has figured out that God could raise the dead. And now with his wife having departed before they owned any land in, the, in Canaan, the promised land, Abraham stakes his claim. He is marking his claim out. This is a determination, a glorious display of faith in the face of loss. Does he focus on God's apparent failure to keep his promise? Sarah's died. You promised we would enjoy the land. I am On in years, and where's this land you promised? Abraham says, no. We will have land here. It's not simply a mark of defiance in the face of death. I think this is this faith in action that has been growing over all these years and chapters that we've looked at. A faith that now knows that God always keeps his promise and that death isn't the end. And Abraham says, you promised me this land? Okay, I'm going to buy a plot. Because you said that this land would belong to me and my family after me. Not just this little patch, but the whole thing. In his faith, it's as if he's saying, I might be at the end of my days, but God has promised me the whole land. And one thing I know is that God always keeps his promise. So I'm going to buy here. Because this is where my people will be in generations to come. This will be home. This will be our place. And they'll gather around my grave. My descendants after me will be here. They will bury here. This will be home territory. Although I'm an alien and a stranger now, God has said this will be home. I'm not going away off to where I came from to bury my family. This is where I live. Reminded of a lady in our denomination who's Husband uh, died much earlier and he was buried in his home congregation and she had gone on and she had lived and worked in one of her other congregations for many years and then she was tragically killed in an accident. Where was she buried? She wasn't buried back where her husband was buried. She said, I want to be buried here in the church that I've lived and worked in where my people are and where my family live. I want to be buried here. This is home for me. 
There's something rich and lovely about that. This is home for me. And that's, that's what Abraham's saying. This is home. This is home. I wonder if it, it even goes further than that. I wonder if he thought one day, I will rise again from this tomb. For I reckon God can raise the dead. And he promised me the whole land. He promised me the whole land. And if there's one thing I've learned is that God keeps his promise. He gave me a son when all seemed dead and gone. And he's promised me the land and I haven't got it yet. But I know that he could raise the dead. Okay. I'm buying a front row seat. I'm booking my place for the resurrection. This will be my place. Like somebody who had the opportunity to invest in the early days of Microsoft, who believed the promise that the product held and bought shares. That's what Abraham's doing here. That's what this is. God had promised the promised land. And Abraham is investing in the promise. Whenever pain might cause him to doubt, Abraham says, no, I am going to focus on the promise and I'm going to double my investment as it were. John Calvin writes about this. For while they themselves, meaning Sarah and Abraham, were silent and speechless, meaning when they were dead, the tomb cried aloud. What did it cry? It cried aloud that death formed no obstacle to their entering on the possession of what God had promised. Death didn't stop God's people having what God promised. God had said the land would be his. And Abraham says, okay, I take you at your word. I'm camping here until you raise me. We find something similar in the the book of Jeremiah in chapter 32 where the Babylonian troops are surrounding Jerusalem and Jeremiah is told to buy a field out in that, outside the city walls that are, is presently being encamped on by the Babylonian armies. He's to buy this field from a relative. You can imagine the relative going, happy days. <laughs> what are you doing buying the field? But quick, quick, seal the deal, give me the money. And Jeremiah is wondering, why am I doing this? Why, God, why would you tell me to buy a field that I have no hope of ever doing anything with? The Babylonians, have you not seen their camping on it? Laying siege to our city and God says, one day, that field will be worth a fortune. One day, there will be crops being planted on it and sold. One day, all that you think is going to happen in these bleak circumstances of the Babylonians surrounding your city, one day, that will all be reversed. You're not wasting your time. Trusting God's promises. Think of poor Ephron. Ephron gets a fortune. Fortune. It's about 70 years wages. That's what he gets. 70 years wages of silver. And he couldn't take it with him when he goes. Abraham, on the other hand, does take it with him in a sense. Because he's going to be raised from the dead and he's going to have his piece of land in the promised land. Because God's going to keep his promise. He's going to make this whole world new. And one day you will get to meet Abraham and walk with him. And you say, see here, I bought this from Ephron. 
And here I am walking on it now because it's mine, because God keeps his promise. Abraham's faith fueled his investment in God's promises, and this is practical and helpful. When job loss comes, yes, we'll be disappointed. But will we live in such a way that shows that we expect God to provide our daily bread and to provide for His people? Will we look at the problem or look at the promises? When our physical health starts to break down, we'll lament its going. Yes, Abraham grieved loss here. But will we look with greater delight to the prospect of all things being made new? Will we look to the promise when disappointment comes? Will we be sorrowful? Yes. Or will we despair and focus solely on the problem? Or will we look to the promises, reminding ourselves that God isn't finished yet and His promises aren't confined by this short lifespan that we have? Even on through death itself, our constant guide is He, the psalm says. When bereavement comes, we'll grieve. But will we grieve as those who have no hope? Or will we grieve as those who have hope? There's something of a great air of confidence about Abraham. He's convinced against all reality that God will one day keep His promise, that He will be buried in the midst of His people. Faith's investment, when faced with loss and hurt and pain, will we bank on God to keep His promise no matter what? Will we invest ourselves in His promise? That's what Abraham's doing. Will we hang on to His promise? What does it mean to invest in His promise? Get the promises, hang on to them, preach them to yourself, pray them to God, make them your focus. Invest in the promise. Abraham is so focused on the promise that God would give him a possession that it permeates his speech to these people. And then thirdly, and I've already mentioned it, but faith's fulfillment. Faith's fulfillment. Was Abraham wasting his time? Well, heaven will reveal that. Heaven will show everything being made new. And Dale Ralph Davis somewhere uh, says that he believes that in the world being made new, at the very least, the Middle East will have to have the same sort of geographical features because God promised Abraham that this whole land would be his. And it's, it's as if Abraham in the resurrection will be walking about going, There's that valley that God promised. And there's that lovely green fertile land heading down towards where, yes, Sodom and Gomorrah used to be down there. But oh, look, it's fresh and green. Look, there's the the Jordan Valley. And there's there's the mountains around Jerusalem. God promised them to me. And we'll see that fulfillment one day. But even before we get there, there's signs, even indicated in this chapter, of God's 
intention to fulfill his promise. Did you notice the fact that it keeps putting in brackets Moses' explanation of the geography? Verse 1, she died at Kiriath Arba. That's Hebron. That's the modern day name, even the modern day name today, but the modern day name for the people when Moses was writing 400 years after Abraham. And then in 19, verse 19, afterward Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre. By the way, that's at Hebron in the land of Canaan. Who's Moses writing for? Is he just writing a history? No, he's writing this for a people who have just left Egypt and they're heading towards Canaan. And Moses is telling them there that they're going home. That no matter how many years have passed, no matter how unlikely it seemed that they would ever see the promised land, they're going to where God had made a promise to Abraham, and now God is keeping that promise. And we learn that no matter how long the delay, no matter how unlikely it seems, God keeps his promise. They're going to the promised land. And in the middle of that plot of land, I'm sorry, in the middle of that land, there is a plot of land, a family plot, their family, and they're going home. And the day would come when they would conquer that place. And there's a lovely bit. Remember how they they left Egypt. They were told to go into the promised land. They sent spies in to see what it was like. And the 12 spies came back. And 10 of them said, oh, it's terrible. They looked at the problems. Two guys looked at the promise. Joshua and Caleb looked at the promise. Says, okay, we'll go in and take the place because our God's big enough. But the ten spies swung the day and the people were told, no, you can't go into the land. They were destined to wander for 40 years in the wilderness till that generation died out except for Joshua and Caleb. And then the time comes when Caleb and Joshua are going into the promised land and Caleb says, Joshua, you remember, we went into the promised land and we were sent to spy it out. And it seems that when they were spying it out, they they went to one place. They went to a particular place. And they, they, they saw it too. Now they didn't just look generally at the land. They went and they looked out one place. Because Caleb says in Joshua 14, he says, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me and Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old uh, when the servant of the Lord sent me to spy out the land. Then he says, And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said these 45 years. And then he says, Yet I am as strong this day as in the day that Moses sent me. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. What mountain? Where where does it seem that they went to in the promised land that that, that Caleb felt this? God God told me that place was mine. Verse 13 of Joshua 14. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb as an inheritance. Caleb believed the promises. Not just the promise made that God would take them into the promised land, but I think Caleb asks for this place because he is steeped in his family history. And he knows that Abraham, with incredible faith, purchased this piece of land And this piece of land is the place where this is home. 
This is where my people are. This is where my hero in faith lies buried. And he's allowed, as it were, any free choice of anywhere in the promised land. Caleb says, I want Hebron. I want the place where God said, or where Abraham said to God, I trust you to keep your promise. And here we are, 400 years later, and God has kept his promise. And I want to live there. Because God is a God who keeps his promise. Because faith is fulfilled. Faith is not wasted. Faith will be honored by God. No matter how long the delay, no matter how unlikely our present circumstances make it seem, no matter how much trouble lies in the way, God's people will inherit what God promises. That's why in Jeremiah 32, God said to to Jeremiah, Once more, Fields will be bought in this land of which you say it's a desolate waste without people or animals for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. You're saying, oh, it's a waste, it's a waste, it's a waste. I tell you, once more fields will be bought and sold. Deeds will be signed, sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin in the villages around Jerusalem, in the towns of Judah, in the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, because I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Again, God is saying, when we invest our faith in him, no matter how unlikely it seems in our circumstances, no matter what's happening in our lives, when we trust him, he will see it through. He will do what's good and best. We're heading for the promised land. Many trials lie between us and it. There was a tomb that told Caleb that God was a God who kept his word. There was a tomb that told the people of Israel that they were going not to a strange and new place, but that they were going home. And for us, there's a tomb that tells us that God keeps his promise. There's a tomb that speaks to us about going home. It's not a tomb like Abraham's that was full, but it's a tomb that's empty, that gives the same message. The full tomb spoke of their hope in God's promise. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Leah were all buried there. But now an empty tomb speaks a better word to us, a word of certainty to us, saying that our faith will be fulfilled because the former inhabitant of that tomb is alive and has gone ahead of us into the presence of God, our promised land. And what did he say? He says, if I go, I will come back. I'm going on to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. Faith has its pain, its trials, its testings. Faith, what do we do in those moments? Do we look at the problem or do we look to the promises as we seek to invest our faith in the promises that God has made? We will find that God keeps his word. That he keeps his word and faith finds its fulfillment. Second Peter 3, Peter says, What kind of people ought you to be. He says, 
in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Keep going, he says. You're not wasting your time. Keep looking forward. Keep trusting. For he is a God who keeps his word. If you're able to, let me invite you to stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, as we read this, what seems to us a a strange chapter, we see in it behind the, the negotiations, behind the dealings and the bargaining, we see your servant boldly staking his claim in faith that this would be home. And he fully expected you to keep his word. And Lord, we thank you that we see in the history of your people that you kept his word, or your your word to him. We thank you that we see that that land is the land that you brought the people back to. Even see today, it's still the land that they're in. And Father, we thank you for that. And we thank you for how that points us further forward to the place where our Savior has gone on ahead and staked a claim and said, this will be your home. And how do we know it will be our home? Because he has gone on ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And he'll come back to take us to be with him where he is. Lord, encourage our faith in this, that we are not wasting time and help us when problems besiege us or even overwhelm us to hang on to the promises that you have made, knowing that we will not ultimately be disappointed, but that we we will be thrilled and enthralled at what you have done. Father, help us Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.